every company, no matter how small, can, from the very beginning of when they start as a startup, create a positive impact in the world. Find something that excites you, that you think this is a cause worth believing in, that I want to connect my brand, my company's identity to. It's going to help me attract customers. It's going to help me attract employees. Find something that you're passionate about. It doesn't mm. need to be your nature. It but everybody cares about something. But find something and integrate that into the messaging and, the, and your branding. And it's going to help you find your target audience, right? Mm. And, and I think that idea of create this impact that you care about from the moment you start your organization or as you're scaling a startup, I think is really important. Hello, welcome to Tiny Dragon where we dive deep into tech startups mastering product market fit, even in the most unfamiliar markets. I'm your host, Elaine. Join us as we dive deep into the heart of tech startups, uncovering the secrets of how tech startups found their product market fit, turning complex insights into actionable strategies for entrepreneurs and tech enthusiasts alike. Okay, welcome to Tiny Dragon. Today, we have a special guest, Simon's syllabics and uh, yeah we we want to uh, interview you because uh, you also have a tech startup now that's in the sustainability climate change area that's more about impact investment i think right can you first simon share with us your background and how did you get into this tech startup yeah sure elaine uh, thanks so much for having me i came into let's say into startup life pretty I would, I would almost say against my own will, which is probably very different from most entrepreneurs. My background is I've been in academia for a long time. I spent a lot of time studying in university, initially in Belgium, where I'm from, then in the UK. I majored in business ethics and corporate social responsibility. And then I worked for a while in sustainability and innovation consulting before I moved back to the UK to do my PhD in innovation management. And then a few years into my job as a professor, so I moved to Singapore to become a professor in the business school here. I started focusing on the kind of growing intersection of digital technology and environmental sustainability. Mm. So I did quite some work on this. And at some point, Together with my, at the time, postdoctoral researcher, we flew to Myanmar to interview and spend some time with a nonprofit that was run by a 79-year-old Norwegian man that was working on mangrove restoration in the Bay of Bengal. And like a couple of things really struck us there. The, the mangroves themselves, beautiful, weird forests for people who've never seen them. But the main thing that we were interested in was like, why is a 79-year-old Norwegian who, by the way, had been banned from Myanmar for over 30 years, mm. uh, persona non grata, because he was in the 60s very active in advocating for press freedom. And so he had a different, very different set of activities. So why is this person spending his golden years working in the swamps? Working in mangoes is very hard work. And... And what drives that person? And so what we learned was that in 2008, a cyclone called Nargis hit the coast of Myanmar the, in the coast of Bengal and killed just over 138,000 people. Wow. And Arne, that's the 79-year-old Norwegian man, showed us these two maps of this is the map that shows historical deforestation since the 1970. And mm. this is the map that shows the density of death after Cyclone Nargis. And you just saw that the correlation between those two maps was just off the charts. And we really learned two very valuable lessons there that one, I couldn't just sit by the sidelines anymore mm -hmm. and just be an academic that studies and talks about what other interesting organizations are doing. So we wanted to do a bit more. And, and secondly, protecting nature is fundamentally about protecting people. Mm -hmm. And so... My postdoc, Ryan, and I came back from this trip really inspired by, by what we have seen. And two weeks later, he told me that he had set up a company and that I had become a director. Oh. And, mm -hmm. and that was it. 
suddenly okay. we had an organization and that was a uh, global mangrove trust a non-profit that we initially set up and then out of that when we started working with our current ceo matthias who's a more seasoned tech entrepreneur uh, we started working on a specific project for the ngo but that kind of got out of hand and grew into handprint um, at the end of 2019. Mm, i see that you are founder and chief strategy officer at handprint so what's your role in the company actually my role has recently shifted so i'm a chief vision officer now ah, which okay. is which I, th I think is a deliberately somewhat vague title but so my main role in the organization is firstly to do evangelism so that's okay. a key part and then also be the, the front end of the spear in sales conversations so where it's really about convincing persuasion and speaking to people about why this matters and then I lead a variety of very strategic projects that should be almost a little bit like a moonshot factory. Now, we are a very small company, so to have a moonshot factory is a bit insane. But we, are, we realize that there is a product roadmap that's super important for us to deliver on the current needs of our clients. But that alone isn't going to get us to a thousand X. And so what I'm working on is really what are the kind of things that we can do that are going to be step changes into our ability to deliver high quality impact and scale sales that don't fit within the, the product roadmap as we've defined it now. It requires more, I would say, tangential experimentation. And once we figure out how we get this done, then it gets integrated in the longer product roadmap and we can start building real products around this. Mm. Can you give us an example, like to walk the audience through an example sure. of how your business actually works and who's your customer or clients? So our business operates as a multi-sided marketplace for the exchange of high quality impact units. And so an impact unit could be something like a tree planted, one hour of education provided, one kilo of plastic removed from the ocean, one person fed for a day, like a discrete unit of impact that's good for the world. So yeah. on the one side of the market, we curate and help digitize the best nonprofit and social enterprises globally that we bring into our ecosystem. We equip them with improved reporting tools and they can serve as suppliers on a marketplace. And then we have corporate clients that either can just use our marketplace to purchase impact or use a variety of our automation and integration tools to embed impact into their business processes. Mm. And the simplest example, which is how we started, is a, an e-commerce store plugin that a company can use to say, at the moment of checkout, at the critical moment of decision-making for a consumer, am I going to buy this product, yes or no? You can demonstrate that if you're buying this product, we are going to give $1 to reforestation, remove a kilo of plastic. And so we've been able to show that if you do this in a credible way, this can actually increase sales by 16%. Mm. So that's kind of product market fit. So those are two sides of the marketplace. The third side of the marketplace is a group of companies that we are developing now and building partnerships with that are providing technological inter technologically independent verification of the impact on top of the kind of trust layer that handprint has already built so that's how we currently work and so what can we are now working more about the technological implication can you clarify a little bit about what that means on the, the third part of the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So let's say that we are working with an, um, a reforestation group in Guatemala and they we've got a client that wants to plant a million trees. Mm -hmm. So what we are going to provide them is high quality, high frequency data on what is actually happening inside this nonprofit organization or social enterprise that is executing the work. And so uh -huh. we'll get all of this information. But at some point, this company is going to say, we planted a million trees. We want to have an independent audit on how much carbon has been sequestered in the last two years. Got right? it. 
And so then we'll bring in a space-based intelligence machine learning organization that has the capacity to do this audit, if we provide them with the right GIS files and all of that, and say, okay, we can now tell you independently, this has this is the carbon that has been sequestered. So that's one example. So it's basically using technology to increase transparency. Absolutely. Okay, got yeah. it. Mm-hmm. So the kind of the background of what we were doing is really that in in 2018, Ryan and I, so one of my co-founders and I, we were asked by the United Nations and DBS, which is the largest bank in Southeast Asia, to do a, a deep dive into how digital technology can be used to advance sustainable development. So we were commissioned to do this piece of research. And what we found over a year and a half of doing interviews and speaking with startups and, and people in the impact space was the two fundamental challenges for companies really are always the same. It is trust. And of course, transparency is a big part of trust and value capture. Mm-hmm. And if you can solve those two things, then you can change the economy. Because if you can make companies confident that if they're sending money to this, whatever, good cause, the money's going to be well spent. Yeah, It enables them to communicate about it. And if you can then help them to figure out can we do so in a way that actually speaks to our stakeholders, our employees, our uh, customers, potentially our suppliers and other partners that actually changes the business or improves stakeholder affection, then you can really capture value. And so mm-hmm. for us, solving these two these two problems is really what underpins everything we're doing at Handprint. So when you say value capture, because uh, I remember last time you mentioned about Gen Z has very different values <laughs> and, and uh, priorities, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's to, is it to capture the younger generation? or I think that's a great example, right? So one of the things we're rolling out next year together with a partner is a retail banking product that enables any bank to develop very quickly all of the capabilities that Handprint has Uh in the form of a loyalty reward system. And so you can have within your banking app, you could have a variety of impact projects that you can fund with your loyalty points. And then you can track and see what actually happens with the money. You'll get get photos, you'll get the videos, you'll get updates from the people in the field. So you'll be able to have a tangible experience course, in a digital way about what actually is going on there. And the reason why we see lots of banks are interested in this is one, there's proof in the market that this works, right? So in the US, we have Aspiration, which has this bank card that plants trees, and it's they raised $320 million. Mm-hmm. Um, in Europe, you've got Ecoja, the, the search engine that also, so it's a green search engine that plants trees. They built green cards or tree cart, same thing. And also it's a very successful product. But so these products are quite limited because they're only focusing on trees. They don't provide choice, but the banks are interested because they see one, there is evidence Two, we are trying to attract this younger generation of Gen Z's that are generally quite aware of all of these challenges that feel severely disempowered from mm. doing something. And that are at risk uh, from the incumbent bank perspective of moving towards neobanks and being banked very differently than people from my generation or maybe your generation. So for them, it's about customer attraction, right? And Mm -hmm. I think these are the, that's where we then really see if the bank can attract a customer at 15 or 16 years old, Mm -hmm. that customer is likely to still be a customer 70 years later because there's incredible loyalty by laziness when it comes to banks. Mm. And people very rarely switch banks unless if they move internationally. But otherwise, banks are considered to be very commoditized from the consumer perspective. So bringing in differentiation enables more value capture, enables you to attract customers maybe at a lower cost. And that's, of course, where a lot of business value can be created. And in terms of the trust and transparency, do you use blockchain <laughs> technologies where you can track how things go, where things go and stuff like that? So recently I was listening to your other podcast with Jeffrey and I think what he pointed out in terms of the, was it the mango on the blockchain? 
is really true. And, and I've written a variety of academic papers on this as well, because I've been in the blockchain space actually since 2015. So I was reasonably early adopter. And initially with our NGO, Global Mangrove Trust, we built blockchain architecture on Zilliqa, um, which is a, a spin-off from a Singapore university. And we really planned to use blockchain early on when we set up Handprint, and we have not. Oh, why and is the, that? The reason is really that nobody wants to pay for it. And so I think there is still a lot of hype in a smaller part of the, in a smaller subset of the world around mm. the potential of blockchain. And I'm still very bullish on it. But when it comes to dealing with larger incumbent organizations, there is not that much understanding of the real benefits. Mm. And when there is understanding of the real benefits, there is also a real understanding of the mango on the blockchain problem, right? At some point, when you're dealing with the real world, you need to have someone that puts the data on the blockchain. Yeah. And so your entire kind of trust architecture that is supposed to be trustless comes down to can we trust the person being centralized again at that well, one it, no it's not centralized because there's many different people can, that can put this data but it, there is always this this point of friction which is unavoidable once you cross the purely digital realm right. and you move into the real world and so in our space in the impact space there's a lot of companies that we know that are working specifically on the kind of tokenization of carbon credits mm. right and i'm always when we speak to them for me, the question is, I know you. the problem that you're solving is real, mm. but nobody in the space that works on the origination of carbon credits, nobody wants that problem solved. Mm. So you're solving a problem that people really don't want to solve. Because if you solve that problem, I... you're taking away their ability to profit as much as they have done in the past from what oh, they're the doing. middlemen, <laughs> right? It's the middlemen, yeah. yeah. And it's price setting power, right? If you build a decentralized open architecture around with total transparency, you're making things a lot more comparable, which is great from an efficiency perspective. But if you're at the origination stage, and so you're building these carbon crediting projects, you're continuously trying to highlight why this project is so unique and so different. That's why it merits this massive price premium. You don't want to see that problem solved. Isn't and it a matter of time though? Because Amazon has price comparison. You On the internet, you now can compare price, which didn't used to have. And it took, what, 20 years maybe for companies to adopt that, right? Yeah, it is a matter of time because at some point, someone is going to do it in such a way that it becomes undisputable and you mm -hmm. basically, it becomes the place to go. You have Amazon in in US, like you have Lazada in, in Singapore, like you have, this is the place, this is the marketplace where everything happens. But until that happens, I think there's a lot of companies trying to solve a problem that just doesn't really need to be solved. And you see the same in the centralized exchanges, right? This is not mm -hmm. a blockchain problem. Like any kind of organization, and we've built one in Singapore here as well called CIX, the carbon exchange, tries to solve a problem of liquidity, tries to solve a problem of transparency that fundamentally one side of the market is not very interested in solving. Mm. And as a consequence, it's a really hard business to do. How about with AI coming out, replacing a lot of people, replacing a lot of middlemen? Is that going to exacerbate or, or speed up the process, you think? I think the potential for AI in the impact space in general is very high. Whether it will really replace people, enhance their productivity, or be somewhat of a mixture, I think is still to be debated. The academic research on this is starting to come out, like the very early studies where we see, as predicted, big enhancements in labor productivity, Yeah, but not yet clear whether this also means that labor productivity increases mean reduction in number of laborers. I think there is a challenge there. What I've heard more informally, and actually especially in software development studios, is 
that but I've heard some of the friends and so that are running studios say like what AI has done for us is it has forced us to hire more senior developers yeah. and but massively reduce the number of junior developers yeah. because those seniors can work much faster now with prompt engineering. And, and I think that's an interesting evolution in the short run, but it creates a massive societal risk in the longer run. Because if we don't hire those junior developers that can do this kind of mundane tasks that can grow into more senior people, then the question is how on earth are they going to learn yeah. what they need to know in order to be the system architects and the builders of the future? And I don't have an answer to that question, but it's something that I'm really interested in and better understanding because I fear that the effects of this short-term efficiency gain might have really negative long-term repercussions. Oh, yeah. We also see th uh, a lot of the 20-year-olds cannot find jobs now um, in design, in programming, uh, because I think there's global outsourcing and AI taking up a lot of the junior kind of work and companies don't want to invest in training these people, which will take like 12 to 16 or like 20, 24 months to get up to speed. So yeah, that that's also another societal impact that yeah AI has overall. Um, on the other hand, I also see that there's a just I'm just providing you. So there's a friend of mine in in Hong Kong who runs this company called Accelerate, and they have a trading platform, and it's a digital trading platform. So you can learn a variety of skills, mainly digital skills. And what's interesting is that as we see companies move make these moves that you're describing in terms of we don't want to hire junior people. At the same time, we also see a counter movement, especially here in Asia, where some of these companies are saying, as part of our kind of corporate social responsibility or even our philanthropy, we're going to train but many more people than we could normally hire. Right? So mm. I think they're working on a deal with, I can't disclose it, but a big tech firm to train 200,000 people mm. in Indonesia on this topic. I was talking to a senior executive at one of the big consultancies and they were talking about, we want to do something very similar. So there seems to be this kind of movement where we know we're going to need these skills in the future. We also know we can't hire these people because with our overheads and so it, that, that's not going to work, but we will finance their yeah. skill development yeah. and we will build this funnel of future employees so I'm hoping that entrepreneurs like my mate and, and others will seize the opportunity to say there is going to be a gap. And I think companies are going to want to fill that gap in order to secure the supply of talent in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think McKinsey also has, has an arm that trains up a large number of young people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so coming back to your business, in terms of the motivation or the product market fit to doing sustainability for these corporates, do you think it's more about big heart saving the earth or is the motivation compliance or where do you find the product market fit? I think if I'm very honest, we're in this journey now for four years and we're still looking for mm. the real product market fit. What we've seen in the sustainability space is that Compliance and legitimacy solutions have very high product market fit right now, if they're well executed. Let's say a tool that helps companies do their sustainability reporting in accordance with either SASB or GRI, which are sustainability standards. Those tools can work if they're well executed and if they're affordable. They're compliance tools in the European Union that help companies report according to regulatory requirements like we see a lot of kind of scaling of those things what we do fundamentally sits outside of the compliance and legitimacy space mm. it's something else right so the question in the compliance world and even in the sustainability space for the last 50 years has never been can you do more good as a company the question has always been can you do less bad and, yeah. and not get penalized. Yes. Yeah. But these are fundamentally different things. Yeah. yeah. Also, the, the kind of challenge with the can you do less bad policy, because initially this was a, a request, now it's a policy, and soon it's, it's mandatory, is that it focuses attention from every company 
on this idea of we have to do, we have to think about our footprint, we have to think about our emissions, we have to reduce this. And by and large, 65 to 70% of the global economy has nothing to do in that space. Mm. And it's a massive problem. It's a massive problem of norm setting and policy formation. Because let's say that you run your, your podcast now, or you've been in, in, in venture capital, or you're a uh, and in, you're an investor, you're a digital company, like what on earth is going to be your obligation to reduce your negative impact is nonsense. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because nonsense. the whole, the whole economy or the capitalist economy is motivated by wall street, right? It's like the, the, the measurement is about profitability and ROI. Yeah. Yeah. But no, what I'm, what I'm getting at is more that if you're not in the business of, making physical products, moving stuff or people, or extracting resources from the earth, which means if you're in the services in the digital sector by and large, which is about 65 to 70% of GDP in the world, then doing less bad is nothing you can do. If you run a podcast, what are you going to do to reduce your negative impact? Yeah, you can buy green electricity if it's available. That's it. But yeah. is that the extent of your responsibility? And at a small scale, of course, it doesn't matter anyway what we do. But if you think about large companies like banks, like insurance companies, like the consultancies, like for them to achieve carbon neutrality, which is the, the main goal for most companies now in the sustainability space, is laughably easy because they don't make things. They don't move things. They don't yeah. mine things. The obsession with just looking at footprint and not thinking about handprint, which is also beside our brand name, also the scientific concept for quantifiable positive impact in the world, is really flawed. And is one of the reasons, I think, why we are in such a bad place still when it comes to biodiversity collapse and, and climate change, that we've just, our narrative is is incorrect and our, mm. and our policy system is bias towards a very small group of companies that should do a lot more than they will do yeah there are this other dimension like for example like ai girlfriends Mm -hmm. that's gonna impact a lot of mental health issues like it's not environmental but it's psychological right like what social media did to our younger generation as well yeah i haven't experimented with this i'm happily married but (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I've read a little bit about this. It's not surprising that these things emerge in a market where people are, despite being very strongly digitally interconnected, are socially very disconnected. disconnected. Yes, yes, especially after COVID, right? Yeah, that's true. Mm. Um, on the other hand, after COVID, lots of bad, of course, came from COVID. But what we've also seen is a rise in environmental awareness after COVID. Mm, and so the right. idea, what I've almost seen is like this realization of we are one planet, right? So the kind of global interconnectedness that if something that kind of originates in China can paralyze the world for two years, that tells us something about the importance of how interconnected we are physically, but also then yeah, how fragile this global planet mm. is that we all live on, right? Because we yeah. can all be affected in a very personal way by this invisible disease and this invisible threat. And I think people made that little jump from maybe climate change is quite similar, right? It's also mm. an invisible threat and it also affects all of us. And yeah. we're starting to see some of the effects. So, so yeah, all the space been- masks. <laughs> Disposable yeah. face mask yeah, during COVID, right? Okay, yeah, those so, were not good for um, the climate. In terms of sustainability, because one thing I noticed is you, you're stationed in Singapore. So I wonder if the concept of sustainability transfers across culture. If you go to Asia, do people care more or less about climate change and all that? Or is it more European thing or North American thing? Asia is is big, right? So I think Asia really isn't homogenous. If you Mm -hmm. look at the data, for instance, like Wunderman Thompson uh, wrote in 2021, this really interesting report called Regeneration Rising, which is about the the trends that 
handprint is part of, then more and more companies start to think about how do we regenerate nature and restore the planet to uh, planetary health beyond how do we reduce our personal negative impact on the planet, right? Yeah. And so they found the highest awareness of this in China. So I think very often people in the US and in Europe have a really bad misconception of hmm. what actually is happening in China. There is a lot of environmental awareness in China. The most successful company doing regeneration at scale is a Chinese company called Alipay. So I think awareness is diverse. I think it's changing in Japan. We've now started a lot of conversation in Japan. It's growing there. In Singapore, I think environmental awareness is high, but willingness to pay is very low. In other countries like Indonesia and Vietnam, and so it really depends on whom you're talking to. I think there is an educational divide that's quite stark still. More and more companies are getting interested, and that is probably because employees are getting interested, that is because consumers are getting interested, but it's still, it's not intrinsically motivated. And so mm -hmm. we are in conversation with, with a large Indonesian company that is planning to IPO, and they've come to us and said, look, okay, we need to do something around sustainability. But to be honest, we don't give a, we don't give a shit. But <laughs> we're going to IPO. And so we need to have something, right? Ah. And okay. And I think when you go to Europe, you have very high levels of awareness and it's more intrinsic, the motivation. Mm -hmm. One example of this, for instance, I was talking to uh, one of the executives at Razer, the, the gaming tech company. And they said in Europe, they have this option to tell consumers like, oh, do you want to offset the carbon emissions of your product delivery? And he said, almost 25% of people opt to pay more. Mm. That's an insanely high number. Yeah, And it, it could be higher, but it's very strong. But we've seen in Australia, integrating our tree plugin in a shop, we did A-B testing on this to see what the effects was. And we saw a 16% increase in sales. Mm. on the version of the website where the plugin was integrated. Now, that might be very specific to Australia, where you similarly yeah. have very high awareness. And I think in the US, it's also quite similar. But then in the US, I think the opportunity is even higher because culturally, there is a very strong expectation that you can tip. Right. right. And so if you create a point of sale system where you can tip for the planet you would almost expect that the vast majority of Americans naturally are going to do this because they're so used to tipping, which again is very different in Europe and very different in uh, parts of Asia. So it, it's not super homogenous. In general, I would say there is a rising tide around environmental awareness, but the discrepancy, especially at the corporate level, is that I would say Asia is still maybe four or five years behind the US and maybe six, seven years behind Europe in terms of thinking about this not purely from a compliance mentality and really thinking about this as how is this a strategic differentiator? Yeah, which so, brings me the question of like, why are you stationed in Singapore? <laughs> on the one side, of course, I was living here and, and my, my co-founders are in Indonesia and in Bangkok. So uh -huh. building a team in Asia was the goal. Singapore has the advantage of being a very trusted marketplace, a very trusted mm -hmm. regulatory system. So companies happily do business with Singapore. There's yeah. quite some currency stability in Singapore as well, which is also important when you're running a startup. But I think most importantly for us is we want to be close to the impact side of the world. So mm. many of our impact partners are the NGOs we work with are in Southeast Asia, in India, and but now also in Africa and in, and in South America. But so I think it's important for us to be close to, to that side of the market. And the benefit we have in Singapore is that lots of the global uh, the MNC HQs in Asia are in Singapore. Oh, right? okay. And so our kind of contact points with Google, with Amazon, with Facebook, with all of these companies, they're all based in Singapore as well. Yes, they don't make all of the decisions, but they have quite some autonomy. Right? So being able to be here, I think, has this advantage that you can actually speak to many of the same companies you could speak with in Silicon Valley, 
they don't have the same level of decision-making power, but it's also much easier to get in a conversation with them. Mm. So I think there is, Singapore is an interesting hub for startups that want to serve large multinationals. Because okay. So do you see any like market changes before and after COVID in your space, your industry? We really started just before COVID, right? So the, my kind of practical expertise in terms of talking like how was the market like before COVID is, is very limited. But what we've seen, I think, with COVID is, of course, the main trend is that there has been a trend towards further and further digitization, which hasn't really stopped. And I think with AI, isn't going to stop. And I think also while we see growing awareness, I almost think if we look at the world now, um, so end of 2023, when we're recording this, it's like the big thing that is challenging the, the world of sustainability is not COVID. It's the fact that after COVID, we saw the war in Ukraine start and now more recently the war in Palestine. And these things create new and very substantive kind of shocks to the, the global economy, right? It's mm. uncertainty, it's higher risk, uh, interest rates going up, as a consequence, venture capital drying out, but also the opportunity cost of investment for companies is changing. And so I have the feeling that these two wars are actually having a much more adverse effect on the sustainability space than COVID had. COVID mm. arguably may have even had positive effects. It had positive effects in terms of we flew less, we drove less, mm. and we we were sat in our house and there were some things about this that were good for the planet as an ecosystem, okay. not for people. But I think with the, the heightened uncertainty that really started with Russia's invasion in Ukraine, put a real damper on enthusiasm to engage in new ideas in sustainability, in taking risk and as a consequence yeah put a big downer on the market do you see companies looking more inward in terms of being in their own country instead of globe the reverse globalization trend we don't see this so much yet in mm. because most of the companies that we talk to are quite global and they don't have an, an interest in deglobalizing they want to expand they want to grow but i do think that the general, again, from the sustainability perspective, the general obsession in the sustainability doctrine has been think global, act local, right? So mm -hmm. you have to think about the global problems, let's say like climate change, but then you have to do something locally. From the from my perspective, from and even from the perspective of regeneration, that is utter horseshit, right? It's like saying, I really care, I'm from Belgium, but I really care about climate change, so I'm going to plant trees in Belgium. But you're an idiot, like, because you're going to plant trees in Belgium at five or 10 times the cost of doing it, let's say, in Indonesia or Myanmar, and 50 times less carbon absorption and almost no social benefits likened to what you could create in a country where putting that money in nature actually has very big impact. Mm. Right? So, but that's still the dogma in sustainability. And so many companies still want to think local in that way. But I know because also I think the kind of deglobalization and the more eh, but whether it's like America first doctrine or whether it's uh, Europe imposing taxation on specific imports, I think the real organizations that are most at risk and are affected by this are the ones that are in production, like the manufacturing organizations, the agriculture. And these are not really the companies we speak to. We spend most of our time with companies that are digital, that are service oriented. And so they don't really have the same deglobalization experience. I'm wondering if it's also because if you look at the Maslow hierarchy of needs, maybe regeneration is like a, more like a higher hierarchy of need, like self-actualization. And now yeah. companies are down the ladder and more survival mode just keeping things together and stay afloat because of absolutely. a recession, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I think I think this is totally correct. If you're struggling for short-term survival, your interest in the long-term protection of all species on Earth is 
naturally going to be much lower. Okay. All right. What are some of the interesting cross-cultural stories you can share with us? Because you're, you're now in Asia, right? And, and your, your cultural roots is probably somewhere else. Have you seen any interesting cross-cultural stories uh, you can share with us? I think there are. We are a very decentralized team because we started during COVID. And so we have a, a Belgian founder, a French founder, and an American founder who all had been living in Asia for a long time. So a little bit, or maybe a little bit more an Asian mentality already. Then we have our head of marketing is Peruvian, but she lives in Vietnam. Our CEO is Vietnamese French. Then we have quite a few other French people in product and, and growth. But then we have a, a tech team that's primarily in Vietnam and India. We have people that live in, in Japan. So we have people in eight countries. And I think we have about nationalities, mm. quite small team of 15, 25 people. So I think the whole, our whole company is an intercultural melting pot. Yeah. The, I think the main differences that we see in terms of our differences in terms of communication styles, right? In, and I think within Asia, these are well-known differences. When you're talking to developers in India, they will always, almost always say, yes, it's possible. Yeah. Even if it's not. <laughs> when you talk to people in Japan or Japanese people, especially uh, clients, they will always say, they always seem very interested, but they'll, they won't be able to make a decision until, even for a very small thing, until the CEO signs up. Right? And so mm -hmm. I think as you grow the organization and you get more and more exposure, you learn about all of these different things and know how to temper your enthusiasm. Because it's not because somebody says these words that they actually mean the same once you put your cultural interpretation on it. I'm trying to be harmonious and nice yeah. <laughs> about it. Okay. Interesting. Any other product-related um, cross-cultural issues? That's an interesting question. I think if we're talking more like product market fit, so what mm. we've, and I'm not, this is maybe not really cross-cultural, but so feel free to interrupt me if you think this goes too far off. But so when we started uh, building Handprint, we initially sat in our houses because we were all under lockdowns and so talk to some customers or potential customers, but very quickly, way too quickly, started building a prototype, started building initial version of a platform. And then we looked around and said, okay, what are companies that are somewhat similar in the space? What are they doing? And they all had Shopify plugins, right? Yeah. So they, because it would seem like an easy way to say, okay, enable some kind of e-store to say, we're going to do X or customer is going to do X when they buy a product. And so we said, cool, let's focus on that as well. Let's build this plugin. But then I think we did this, but we also had this platform and I think we over-designed it in a way that just became cumbersome and that the onboarding experience and the UX of the whole thing was just, we spent years trying to improve that as probably normal. But eventually we think, if we look at this now, like we're probably gonna, just sell off that product. We don't even want to be in this marketplace anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that has to do really with culture, but it has to do with, I think as a startup, you're either having this illusion that nobody else is doing what you're doing. You're in a total blue ocean and you're awesome. And that probably means you didn't do research. Mm. Or you've seen, oh, lots of other kind of organizations are doing something somewhat similar. So we'll do something that is a little bit like that. I will kind of sit in this category, but we'll give our own little twist to it. And I think these are the, the two dominant ways in which uh, startups build product. But it's not because there are 20 or 30 other companies that are building this product that they're actually doing well, that they're making money, that it's actually that it solves a need. Because mm. that same tendency can basically exist by many others that look, oh, somebody's doing this, <laughs> we're going to imitate it. And then you've got 20, 30, 40 companies imitating each other and none of them doing any real business. So I think that's really, a, maybe it's a it's a, probably a mistake that we made. Now, regardless, we learned a lot from that and mistakes are valuable. But I think that our assumption was that because we see lots of other companies doing something like this, it must be a sign that it works. 
And I think that's really not necessarily true. Right. This might be collective, like a snowballing effect that is not proof of anything outside of a snowballing effect. Mm. So how do you find out if there is a product market fit? Or what, I mean, what, what strategies do you use? We now have really, like our team, our product team really spends a lot of time on, on user research. And I think part of the, the sales team as well that are having these early conversations are continuously trying to figure out problem identification. What are the things you'd actually want to pay for? And then, of course, we have to transfer that information to the product team. Sorry. I think now we have a pretty good way of determining what the kind of product needs are, what the user needs are. But at the time, we didn't have the capacity, probably nor the, the realization that we really needed to do much more user research on this. So we built, we over-engineered, mm. and then we realized that, okay, this isn't working. And the way we realized this is because we, we built this entire growth engine, which is a very good product, allows us to send 30,000 emails, 77% opening rates. Um, and so really strong performance and many, let's say, kind of growth agencies that are approaching us. Oh, we can help you grow your lead and uh, all of these guys. Uh, they probably have a similar product to what we've built as something, oh, we might need this in the business, right? Mm -hmm. And very good product, but we realized that we are not getting the returns in terms of uh, the cost of customer acquisition is way too high. Plus that, and that's an additional problem in, in our space is that if even if you send $10,000 to handprint or $100,000 to handprint, most of that money is not for us, right? So our, let's say our cost of goods, uh, goods sold is very high because we send at least 80% of the money goes to impact partners. Mm. Even if you have a client says, ah, but we spend like $1,000 on you per month. Yet that doesn't mean we, you, that means you're a loss making client. Mm. Right? Because we have to serve you. We have to tweak this thing for you. If we have to spend more than two hours working for you, then you're, then we're making a loss on you. Right? And I think what we fail to realize with this, with this product, specifically the e-commerce product, is that it's not because you have a Shopify plugin that it works for every Shopify store in the world. It really doesn't. Mm. There are hundreds of thousands of different themes in Shopify that people can flexibly choose from, which is great for people starting their Shopify store. But if you have a plugin there, every theme needs minor adjustments. And as a consequence, while we assumed this would be a very kind of scale-free resource so that you could just put out there, people could adopt and it would just generate revenue without us spending time on this. What we realized is like, it's not working like that for us. Mm. We have too much product-related issues with this plugin. And as a consequence, it doesn't scale. Even though there is a massive market of, I don't know, how many Shopify users are there? I think two, three million. Then we also have this for WooCommerce, from Magento, PrestaShop, like all of the other guys. It just doesn't scale. Mm. And it should scale because we did all the thinking was right, but we missed some critical aspect, which it's just, it's never going to be perfect for everyone. And as a consequence, it doesn't scale in the way you hope. And then it doesn't make sense to run it because... If you need to make adjustments for every company that spends like a hundred or two hundred dollars with you, that's just a cost you can't incur. Yeah, especially you're working with larger companies, they probably want some customization, also, right? Yeah. But larger companies are easier in that way because they will very rarely run on Shopify. And uh -huh. if they run on Shopify, they will run on Shopify Plus and they will probably have a staging and a an actual live website. They'll be able to do do the experiments, get everything to work before pushing stuff live. Mm -hmm. So many smart, smaller companies don't have that. And then if something is breaking, oh yeah, the plugin doesn't show up or it looks off, then it ruins the customer experience for them, which obviously is difficult. They don't mm -hmm. want to do that because they don't want to lose sales. Plus larger companies might also have more dev, cap dev capacity and then just say, we don't need a plugin. We're just going to use the API. So we have this universal impact API that can be integrated and linked to any kind of event that has a digital trigger, whether it's a sale, whether it's an impression, whether it's an event registration, whether it's whatever. And so they'll use the API and then create a design that perfectly fits their website, which right. is really where we want to be because our vision has always been as handprint. We want to be the infrastructure for yeah. the regenerative economy 
we don't necessarily want to develop specific use cases for every industry. Mm -hmm. With a universal impact API, companies can design the experience they want. Okay. One last question. To summarize what's like the one takeaway from this interview you want your audience to learn from? What I want the audience to learn, that has nothing to do with product market fit. I think the, the main thing that I want an audience of people that are interested in tech to learn is that every company, no matter how small, can, from the very beginning of what they, when they start as a startup, create a positive impact in the world. Find something that excites you, that you think... This is a course worth believing in that I want to connect my brand, my, my company's identity to. It's going to help me attract customers. It's going to help me attract employees. Find something that you're passionate about. It doesn't mm. need to be your nature. It doesn't, uh, in of, but everybody cares about something. Even, I don't know, even if it's we really care about Second Amendment rights. Even if it's that, right? I'm not a yeah. big fan of this as a non-American, but find something. And integrate that into the messaging and the, and your branding, and it's going to help you find your target audience, right? Yeah. And, and I think that idea of create this impact that you care about from the moment you start your organization or as you're scaling a startup, I think is really important. So and, it's the passion driving the mission of the company. Yeah. But, yeah. And also passion for something larger than Just your so. own kind of profit. And right? so... Yeah. If you say, oh, the only thing I'm really passionate about is making more money. It's okay, fine. Then you might be successful as an entrepreneur. But so if you care about something that is a bit larger than yourself, I don't know, the plight of the eagle or the the whatever, specifically coral reefs in Miami or the mango, mm -hmm. whatever. If it's something that you have an affinity with, find a way to support it and make it part of your story. And I think that's going to benefit everyone. Yeah, it will keep you going in tough times, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. And so how can our audience contact you? I'm mainly active on LinkedIn, but LinkedIn. that will require okay. you to be able to remember and write my last name, which is always yes. very tricky. <laughs> my email is simon at handprint.tech. Feel free to email me. I'm also on Twitter at simon underscore JDS, but I must say I'm not very active on x now so yeah email linkedin probably the best places or just go to the website handprint.tech and tell the chatbot i want to talk to simon and <laughs> magic will happen behind the screens to make it happen okay <laughs> so thank you so much simon for your time and lovely to learn about what you do and the global outreach that you have all right thank thanks so much you. for having me